Hello? Hello, Rachel Snyder. This is Steve yes. Scher from Town Hall. Yes. Hi, hi. I just, I was like, for a second, I was like, wait, am I on speaker or am I? <laughs> it's the, yes. ma- the magic of Skype. I know. <laughs> it's true. Hello, and welcome again to At Length. I'm Steve Scher. Thank you again for joining me. I called journalist Rachel Louise Snyder by Skype in early May, on the day of the publication of her acclaimed new book, No Visible Bruises, What We Don't Know About Domestic Violence Can Kill Us. The New York Times calls it an extraordinary book that dismantles the myths that surround domestic violence. Eve Ensler, author of The Vagina Monologue, cited No Visible Bruises as a seminal and breathtaking account of why home is the most dangerous place to be a woman. This book is global in scope, about a very hard, sad, and persistent epidemic. Yet Snyder, as you will hear, has a light touch in this interview. How's the um, the hookup? You can hear me okay? Yeah, it's good. It's good. I have discovered okay, cool. that if we... Uh, if we never do video chat, then the Skype calls are always good. Right. And also, every author is then in their pajamas. Then, And <laughs> what better way to do any interview, correct? Right. Exactly. I mean, not me, of course. I'm fully dressed and ready to go. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's really the way you should be able to do half your journalism, right? I mean, half of it, I know you have to go out and do the work. but I know. I really have to work myself up to that, too. <laughs> Where do you where do no. you live? Uh, D.C. Oh, so sure you have to you do have to do that. Yeah, yeah. Sometimes I have to actually engage with the with the bigger, wider world. My uh, <laughs> my uh, nephew's wife is uh, an economist in the labor department, and she does a lot of the um, uh, collects the data and makes sure it's good data for um, for unemployment or employment statistics. Oh, oh, really? Oh, wow. And That's so she awesome. works very hard, you know, and, and yeah. she's very smart, and she has two little kids, and sometimes she gets to work from home. <laughs> and, <laughs> I know. I, that's the big government thing now, the telework. So yeah, it's great. Everybody's then, doing it. It's really improved traffic around town. <laughs> oh, see, I think that's just the way the whole world will be. I think that's fine. Yeah, yeah, I'm right. We're going to lose our ability to interact face-to-face entirely. <laughs> that's okay, you know. Yeah. Has it been that much? You know, is it much, that much it's cracked up to be? I know, I know. You know, it's funny. I think D.C. has, has um, I like to call D.C. and L.A. sister cities, which everybody is, like, aghast when I say that. But it's because both places have, like, a complete association to outsiders with only one thing. But when you live in them, you can live, you know completely separate from that one thing as I like I never run into the motorcade I try to avoid the White House entirely these days oh I <laughs> see know? yeah well yeah and then with right? and then LA it's, and then with LA it's just avoiding the the Hollywood aspects of it or the yeah yeah totally yeah interesting so that's my theory someday I'll write about it <laughs> Well, that would be, I bet after an intense book like this, you might look forward to writing about something. I know, right? I know. Although I feel like I just exhausted the entire theory just there in like one <laughs> sentence. <laughs> no, I've read plenty of books that uh, that do much more with much less. So I think that you got something. I, uh, 
<laughs> I think you can do that. Rachel Louise Snyder is an award-winning author, reporter, a professor whose work in print appears in The New Yorker, The Atlantic, The New York Times. She's contributed to Marketplace, All Things Considered, and This American Life for public radio. She is currently Associate Professor of Creative Writing and Journalism at American University in Washington, D.C. Her past books are Fugitive Denim, A Moving Story of People and Pants in the Borderless World of Global Trade, and the novel What We've Lost is Nothing. The 2018 UN Commission on the Status of Women report said that 35% of women worldwide have experienced either physical and or sexual intimate partner violence or sexual violence by a non-partner at some point in their lives. The 2019 report focuses on domestic violence around the globe. A report from the World Health Organization found that women who have experienced physical or sexual intimate partner violence report higher rates of depression, having an abortion, acquiring HIV. No Visible Bruises is a revisioning of this global epidemic. It upends many myths and misunderstandings about what is commonly called domestic violence. It explores the ways even the language we use to talk about it doesn't fully capture its insidiousness. The Violence Against Women Act, drafted by Senator Joe Biden and U.S. Representative Louise Slaughter of New York and signed by Bill Clinton in 1994, emerged from years of lobbying by activists. It is a keystone of legal support for victims of domestic violence. One of its key provisions emphasizes and funds coordinated community response to domestic violence, sexual assault, and victim services. It passed with bipartisan support, though conservative Republicans did try to cut funding for the bill in 1995. It's been reauthorized three times. It expired in 2019. The House has reauthorized it, but the Senate has not yet passed it. The House has, you know, reauthorized it. It's just sort of sitting, waiting for reauthorization at the Senate. Um, there's a there's a movement afoot in some Democratic circles to um, kind of dispense of the Violence Against Women Act for something that is more permanent, because as it was written and as it stands right now, it has to be reauthorized every five years. And it's gotten so incredibly political, and really, it should not be. I mean, saving the lives of our citizens should not be political. You know, it's a moral issue. Um, so whether or not that that gets any legs is sort of remains to be seen, but that's where we are right now. Well, what would Democrats do instead? What would be a more permanent um, funding setting, and I guess therefore a more permanent um, approach to dealing with this? Yeah, I mean, well, right now, the Violence Against Women Act, in when it was established, created all kinds of um, funding and opportunities for everything from shelters to different law enforcement techniques to um, advocacy, um, awareness campaigns. I mean, just, just you name it across the board. And so it would be nice if those uh, funding capacities were permanent and didn't need to be reauthorized. The bill was originally written um, because those who wrote the bill, Biden and others, recognized that um, as we learned more about domestic violence, who were the perpetrators, what worked for victims, what worked to try to, you know, um, address violence at its core, those things would need to be adapted and funding you know, funding streams created. So I think it was smart the way they did it initially, but we know so much more now that it would be nice to have those funding streams 
more permanent. And because what happens like in 2013, for example, when it was reauthorized, the Democrats put in extra protections for um, Native American women who live on um, Native American lands, for example, or for LGBTQ, which is both of those areas are really under-resourced. And it started, that's when it really started to get political because the GOP didn't want to give extra protections to those groups. And so what the Democrats, I think, would like to do is take that out of a sort of reauthorization every five years camp and create something that would be more sustainable for those groups going forward. Part of the um, pushback from the Republican side is from the NRA faction, correct? Well, that that is relatively recent, but yes, absolutely. The NRA, you know, believes that even if you're a convicted abuser, you have a right to own guns under the Second Amendment. And, uh, of course, you know, most domestic violence agencies and advocacy uh, oppose that for reasons that are probably obvious. Right now, there is a federal ban on abusers owning um, or possessing guns if they've been convicted of domestic violence, but it's not enforced and it needs to be it needs to be legislation that's passed by each state. So some states have passed it and some have not. Didn't I read among the many incredible and jaw-dropping statistics in No Visible Bruises, didn't I read that um, there was correlation and causation between not letting domestic um, violence abusers, we'll talk about language in a minute, uh, mm -hmm. get to get hands-on guns and a reduction in the amount of uh, violence? There is, yes. It's... it's Yes, there's a there's a researcher in Michigan, April Zioli, who has done a lot of studies on this. She's really a kind of industry leader, um, research leader when it comes to gun violence and domestic violence homicides. Um, it's also so a couple of things about that. Two two points actually I'd like to make. One is that it's not just a reduction in domestic violence homicides. Even when um, abusers are convicted of stalking and they have their guns taken away that uh, her research showed there were um, there was that had e even more uh, uh, what's the word I'm looking for and uh, an even more significant drop in the rate of domestic violence homicides was was taking it away at the stalking being charged for stalking the other point is there's a researcher in in Boston uh, just outside of Boston named David Adams who interviewed 14 men who had killed their significant others with guns for his book, Why Do They Kill? And 11 of the 14 said they would not have murdered their their partners had guns not been available. So I just don't know how anybody can can dispute what is, what is a, a black and white fact to so me. Is there enough causation in the in peer-reviewed literature? to push back on those? I mean, because we could just say, oh, that's correlation, but not causation, right? It seemed like in reading it, though, we had both in these statistics. We yeah, did have causation. I, think, I mean, to me, it seems very clear that it's correlation and causation. Um, to a lot of people, it seems very clear. Uh, I mean, every town for gun violence, the the, the um, advoc they're an advocacy, advocacy group, but they've done a lot of research around this issue as well. And, um, you know, the, the, other, the other point that is often made 
by the NRA and others is that guns uh, make women safer or guns make victims safer because they can then use the guns to defend themselves. And really, none of the research backs that up. There is anecdotal evidence of that, like the, the, you know, that you could find an example where a woman did that here or there. But beyond the anecdotal, the research itself does not back that in any way. Let's talk about language a little bit, because you start the book with language, and you you talk about why you you use she, he, they pronouns for consistency. You know, most writing. books actually start with language. I have that in common with others. Is that right? <laughs> yes. No, well, I'm, kid- I'm kidding. Oh, haha! Ha, I missed it. <laughs> you you have a pretty good you have you have a pretty good sense of humor for somebody who's written this. People are like, "Wow, you write about such dark topics, but you're so funny in person." I'm like, "Well, yeah, you can't live in a in a world of darkness forever." Of course, I come from a strong line of people who find the humor and everything my whole family is like that so anyway go ahead well you talk about being in like like you in the darkness you talk about that in this book that you do do delve into darkness in the worlds of darkness yeah it's true it's true i don't know why i'm attracted to a certain type of darkness as a writer not necessarily as a participant in the human race (laughs) well maybe because you do have a way to work work uh work through it without being absorbed by it yeah yeah that's that's possibly true It'd be How good... much do I owe you for this therapy yeah. session? <laughs> well, yeah, that's right. Well, I was thinking it would be a good skill that a lot of the people you write about in the middle of your book, all those people that are the abusers and violent people. I mean, if yeah. they could have found a way to find another uh, way of perceiving things, we don't mm-hmm. all have that tools. Does that make us yeah. lucky, you and I? I mean, are we lucky? <laughs> Um, I mean, it could. It, there are other terms that one might use for it. Um, you know, uh, what, what's what's the word? Of not dealing with your, you know, avoidance. <laughs> avoidance. <laughs> yes. Yeah. yeah. Well, maybe. Maybe. I don't um, know. I don't know. I had an incident. Yeah. No. I don't know. It could be avoidance. But all right. Let's talk about language. You you do say you say he you use he and she and it's often he for the the um, violent person and often she for the victim of that violence because because why well yeah i mean language language is tricky because in in a book like this i don't you know the there are male victims of domestic violence um and there are female perpetrators and part of the problem is that when we think of the term domestic violence we think man on woman, husband against wife. I mean, most people think that. We don't think mothers against children. We don't think women against men or, you know, same sex, men against men, women against women. Um, And what that means is that that has affected our policy, right? Like society is more progressive than policy. Policy follows social movements, I think. Um, And so there's, there's, a lack of resources for men, for example, Arizona, I think it was Arizona or New Mexico just opened up the first all male shelter just fairly recently in the last couple of years. Um, there are LGBTQ victims who don't have resources. So that's where the language matters so much. When you're writing a book, though, you, um, you, you know, you, you can't get so caught up in that kind of thing that it becomes uh, uh an impediment to being really immersed in the subject. So if every sentence said, you know, she, he, his, her, her, it would be, it would become, 
really annoying to read after a while. So I do feel like I had to address that. And the fact is, while there are all kinds of constellations of abuse, the vast majority of victims are women. The vast majority of perpetrators are men still today. You also you also talk about how the phrase domestic violence, for some advocates, uh, makes them a little un- queasy because domestic violence sounds like we're sort of putting a nice face on something. And But you also write about all the advocates who talk about this as private violence. And I would explain mm-hmm. that concept a little bit more, private violence in this world and how it becomes public violence. Well, that's kind of a two-part question, so I'll, I'll tackle the I know, and part, I violated really... all journalism there, didn't yeah. I? <laughs> <laughs> no, no, I do. That's what we do, though, right? We want, to, we want people to talk and talk and talk. So. Um, so the first part is really, again, about language, and I actually just wrote an op-ed about this for The Atlantic that'll, that'll run, I don't know, later this week or maybe next week, um, about the problematic nature. And part of the problem is that domestic violence is just so abstract, right? We, we used to call it wife-beating or battered women syndrome, and those were problematic for a whole set of different reasons, but they're very visual. I mean, they create an image in your mind, Right. And domestic violence doesn't doesn't get at what is really so insidious about the issue, which is in some ways the anticipation of um, of a beating or the anticipation of your abuser doing something to you. I mean, there are a lot of people in my book that I write about who, who didn't have any physical violence or very, very little. There's a woman that I open with whose husband brought a rattlesnake into their home and kept it in a cage as a way to keep her in line. No one ever saw bruises on her. No one ever saw, you know. So that is a level of anxiety and stress that researchers compare to being a uh, prisoner of war. And that is why domestic violence is so, I think, as a phrase, so unable to capture that insidious nature the unbelievable stress of living in that kind of condition and the word that that many people use today in these circles is terrorism it's a kind of terrorism and of course terrorism has has a lot of other connotations for us as a society but in terms of the stress and anxiety from a victim's perspective in that kind of situation this is a highly charged highly dangerous situation um Terrorism, I think, is an apt description. Well, ter- I've forgotten part two of your question. <laughs> well, no, and how it becomes public violence, and that's that was I was leading to that. I mean, terrorism is apt for this because, as you write, I mean, in these these mass killings that we experience in our world today, so many of them are begun with, triggered by. I don't know what phrases to use, but their domestic yeah. violence is part of that equation, and that private violence becomes the public violence. John Allen right. Muhammad was one of the people you write about, or Charles Whitman. Uh, yes. I was surprised to hear, reminded of that, that Charles Whitman, Texas Tower, first mass shooting of the modern era in some ways. Right, 1960, what was it? 63? Three? Three or something. Like, yeah, somewhere in the 60s, before I was born, so... It, so it's so it's not real to me because it was before I was on Earth, um, but yeah, Charles Whitman, who killed all those University of Texas 
students started the night before with his his own mother and his wife. And John John Muhammad is people may recall the sniper in the Washington D.C. area, Virginia, Maryland, who was just picking off people as they pumped their gas. And you know, I live in D.C. now. I did not live in D.C. then, but people who did live here, um, I've talked to some people about that time, and it was petrifying. And his whole plan was to have those um, sniper attacks as a cover to kill his wife, who he had been incredibly abusive to for years and years. I mean, we had we had. All the, all the area schools had their kids do indoor resource during that whole entire time, the months-long investigation it took to find that sniper. Um, and and so 54%, the, the statistic is 54% of mass shootings are domestic violence. Not that domestic violence predicts them, but that they, in fact, start with vi- violence at home, homicides at home. Even Adam Lanza, the, the Newtown killings of, the, of those first graders, which... I feel like broke my heart and, and I just, I feel like as a person, I never quite healed right from that. I mean, it, it just, it's devastating to even say the words today still. And I, you know, those were not my children, but, um, he, you know, he started with his mother, killed his mother first. And, and it, but it even goes, you know, it even goes beyond mass shootings Issues of poverty, issues of homelessness, issues of, of mental illness, you know, traumatic brain injury is an issue with, with football players and car accident victims that we think about, but we don't think about it with domestic violence victims, so much so that we don't even screen for it in emergency rooms when a domestic violence victim comes in. There are all these intersections of domestic violence with so many social issues that we face today. I want to, I'll come back to that, but you said something that that Newtown shooting mm-hmm. has mm-hmm. changed you. You didn't know anybody. You read about it in the paper first. I mean, how did that, I mean, did you, you know, know I was, enough I people? Was, yeah, I was in Costa Rica, strangely enough. I have this close group of friends that I've known for 30 years, and um, we each now have one daughter. I don't know how that's happened. Our daughters are like 9, 10, and 11. They're all the same age. And we travel together, and we, we bring our three kids, and... Um, so we were all in Costa Rica together. We'd rented a house. And I was on my way to a yoga um, class that was like in the jungle in Costa Rica. So, so Costa Rica. And I, I saw it, I think, on my phone. And like, you know, 26 people killed, first mostly first graders. And I was like, well, oh, that must, that can't, no, I read that wrong. I read that headline wrong. And you could see, like, five minutes went by, 10 minutes went by, and you could see the, um, the, the kind of media building, like, you know, and, it, and it's spreading across media. And by the time I got to that yoga class, it was real. And my daughter at the time was uh, in kindergarten, not in first grade. So, but about the same age. And I, I sobbed through that yoga class in a way that, I mean, I, I just shook and sobbed audibly so much so that I had to apologize to the teacher afterwards. And I felt like I, I just, to me, it felt like the world was ending. None of those children were mine, but my God, to, to, to have that happen. I mean, you're, you're no more vulnerable in your life than when you become a parent. I think, <laughs> you know, you, you suddenly realize like anything and everything could be, 
could be a threat. Your child could fall down the stairs and die, you know, just, and I just, um, I just feel like I, I, I would, I just feel like I was never the same and we just have failed. We have failed those children so fully, which means that we have failed our own children and the children in Florida and the children, you know, I just, um, I don't know. I just feel like I want to apologize to anybody younger than 25 for just, can I say the F word on a podcast for just like fucking up so completely that we can't keep them safe from guns. Is there a, is there a direct line from that to deciding to write this book or undertaking the depth that with which you've undertaken this topic? I know you were in Cambodia. You've been, this is an international story and it, you were in an inter- international place, yeah. but is there a direct line? From you know, there's a there's a direct line uh, in hindsight, right? There's a Monday morning quarterbacking, right? I think is the term for it. I mean, um, for me personally, I've always been attracted to uh, stories of survival and humanitarian stories, and and part of the point of this book, I mean, people. You know, under no circumstances could I say that this topic is a light topic, right? It's domestic violence, it's domestic violence, homicide. But for me, especially when I get to the end of the book, I didn't want to just write a book that was all, um, this is terrible, and look at what we're doing to each other. So I feel like I do end the book with people who are making a huge difference in these areas today. I mean, people who are really, like, legitimately saving lives in a way that it is direct. Like you can see that line directly, but I, you know, I don't think it's any surprise that I fall on the line of, um, of, you know, that there are just too many guns in this country taking too many lives. And that, that is from domestic violence, homicide, all the way down to a group of first graders to gang violence, to, to all, you know, I'm from Chicago originally, which has been in the news in recent years for, uh, portentous reasons, you know? So, um, for me, this kind of violence has, has swirled around and I feel like the thing I have in the world is the ability to write. And so that's, that's what I do. And that's what I'm doing to, to try to contribute to the, to the voices of change in some, in some measure. I feel like I'm not even answering your question. I'm just going off on this in this little place in my head but <laughs> no, that's, a, that's, um, that's a good place for it that's fine I, yeah. mean, that's, I mean that's a good that's a good direction for it to go yeah yeah you know yeah. um uh the uh the idea of it being a public violence or even a public health issue i've heard many public health people talk to many who say you know we should think of this as a public health issue is that you uh, right now we're we're again um looking at immigration and who gets to come in and who doesn't get to come in. And the, mm. and the Trump administration has made some further uh, flurries in that direction. Uh, there's some yeah. discussion about, uh, you know, what to do. New York Times just wrote an article about why, why are people fleeing Honduras? You were in Honduras and wrote about yeah. what's happening there. And it's, it's yeah. not something that can be contained or wished away, right? The people in Honduras are fleeing terrorism, and yeah. which is domestic violence in the guise right. of domestic violence, right? Right. When were Absolutely. you there? I've been there a couple of times, actually. I've, this is a strange connection, but I have a really close friend who lives there. A, um, 
she found there's a dinosaur in Chicago named Sue, the world's biggest T-Rex sure. ever found. Um, and the woman who found that, Sue Henderson, is a really good friend of mine. And she lives in Honduras. She has lived there for many, many years. So I've been down to visit her a couple of times, even just not as a journalist, just, you know, going down. Oh, you know what? And actually, she's from Seattle originally, now that I, now that I mention it. Okay. The neurons are firing. You can hear I, that. I right? know so. she is. I know she is. And that's a great story. And I remember when the... Uh, yeah. I can't remember the name of the guy who wrote a book about the discovery of Sue. He was a guy, though, that wrote it. I can't remember his name. Yeah, Steve Pfeiffer. Yeah, uh-huh. that's it. Yeah, he's from Chicago. I know. He's a friend of ours as well. It's it's a very small world. The world both expands and, and contracts, you know, the, the longer you're you're alive. But, that's right. Um, yeah, I mean, what the Trump administration is doing with immigration in regards to domestic violence is – utterly despicable it is wholly immoral i cannot say that strongly enough the fact that under jeff sessions the department of justice decided um that domestic violence was no longer an adequate response uh, no longer an adequate reason to be allowed into the united states to me shows a deep and dark misunderstanding or lack of understanding about what it is to live with i'll just say domestic terrorism because that situates it i think more fully and you know i um i find it egregious that we are sending victims back to a fate that we are so aware of and if if america ever stood on the moral high ground and that is of course profoundly questionable (laughs) but i think at one point we at least allowed asylum seekers immigrants refugees in um who needed shelter and we no longer do that you know the the, the, we've lost the words too like you know talking about language like when did we start calling them migrants right like migrant to me is so is so different than the word refugee well, and, right. Well, a refugee has status in the, in the world politically. Right, right, right. And um, I mean, my my background is is creative writing, right? Fiction and poetry. And so for me, it's all about images. And those two images, migrant and refugee, are really different in my brain. And I feel like migrants are sort of, you know, the the desperation of a refugee is not captured by the word migrant. And um I just I hope that that gets overturned. I really do. I I just find it um, like it really makes me sick to my stomach to think about what those women and men, but mostly women, <laughs> are leaving, trying to leave, and you know they're at, they're they're just in a purgatory on the Mexican Mexican border, just sitting there with their children. I think uh, uh, imagine our history being a lot different if we if we called the people who were coming here, migrants, instead of portraying them as refugees from yeah. other lands yeah. for the last two years. I mean, I years. feel like, I feel like those, those people that are, you know, sitting on that, on that, on that border right now, mostly women and children, I feel like that is just a slow motion new town happening. Mm. I really do. I mean, I just, they can't stay there. They can't come in. They can't go home. What are they going to do? <laughs> you, uh, you quote um, in, the, in the preface, you quote a, a woman, Kit Gruel, a survivor and an activist, and you, you use this mm-hmm. phrase again towards the end of the book, we are leaping backward at an obscene pace. 
I mean, is it is 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 there more to our leaping backward than what you're talking about there? I mean, are the protections unraveling for a lot of people? Yeah, she is. She is incredible, and she is. Um, she, she's also inherently quotable. She's she's from the South, and so she just has this like, you know, lyricism about everything that comes out of her mouth. It's kind of amazing. But yeah, I mean, we've talked about some of those ways already. Certainly with you know refugees and with guns, but also. Um, you know, new research has just come out from Jack Levin at Northeastern University that ho- domestic violence homicides in this country since 2017 have risen by 20%. For years, the statistic we used was three women a day killed in the United States. That stat since 2017 has been four women a day. And curiously, there's another thing that started in 2017. And that is the Me Too movement. Well, that is curious. What well, mm. you're, are you? What's uh, is that a response? I mean, are you making a correlation? <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> you know, honestly, I didn't think about it until yesterday or the day before. So that's why I left that sort of ellipses hanging there, un- uncomfortably in the ether for you to pick mm-hmm, up. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I, I just it's like. Okay, so Trump was elected. He took office in 2017, right? January. Am I, do I have that right? Yeah, you got it 2017. right. 2017. Um, the Me Too movement started that same... It, well, the Me Too movement started many years before, but, but really took off in 2017. And suddenly domestic violence homicides began to rise. Now, you know, no, no scientist would, would look at that and say, hmm, corollary, 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 corollary. But there's just there's a way in which gears are turning in my head. And I think, you know, I think about a writer like Rebecca Traster, who wrote um, her most recent book is Good and Mad. It came out in December. I read it in like two days. And she talks about women's anger and the power of women's anger. And I do. The one thing I I will say with some assurance is that I feel like women are angry. We're, we're angry publicly. We're angry without apology. We're angry unabashedly today. And um, one of the things I am most furious about is the fact that the domestic violence homicides are rising, not falling. It's inexcusable to me. So, you know, Steve, I, I'm, I don't know that I can articulate a corollary that is that is based in, um, you know, in research right now, but I, because I feel like we're right in the middle of it, but I do feel like we're going to look back on 2017, 2018, 2019 and think, my God, oh my God. Well, I mean, you can see just from, just from the people you talk to, the, the abusers, the violent people you talk to, you can see how a, a, um, pushback or, uh, would, would, uh, arise in their heads and in their and in their hearts you know how dare yeah, you yeah. uh mm-hmm. you know dot 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 yeah and, and how absolutely. that, that could absolutely fuel it. you know um, i mean i think go ahead. you know one of the things i'm so sorry for interrupting but one of the things that that, that is so um and maybe it's it's because i've lived outside of america for long periods of time and i feel like i didn't really get a sense of like what made America America until I, I left for years. And one of the, one of the ways that I feel like America is America is in this, this, um, you know, the philosophy of individuality 
at all cost. We, we have this myth that we are self-made, individuality is key, right? Like I've lived in, in cultures where collectivism or community, you know, community is is the kind of under underlying social f- philosophy, organizing principle, and so I think there's a way in which that individuality, and I'm getting a little, maybe a little myopic here, but um, plays out that says if I lose mine to you, I have to fight back, as opposed to there's room enough for all of us, you know. One of the things I say to my graduate students, uh, I teach in an an MFA program in Washington, D.C., one of the things I say to them before they are about to graduate is, remember that um, that you are not in competition with one another. There is room in this world for all of your stories. And I feel like that's that's the message I would like men to get to that empowering women doesn't mean um, disempowering you that that you know we're not standing on scales and only one of us can can win well that you, like we can we can be there together you quote somebody in the book I forget who now but how this movement when it was uh, reducing violence this movement of women's empowerment has been good for men. And you said you, you see it where? You saw it in parks, you saw it in workplaces and in homes. Yeah, that was um, that was Lynn Rosenthal, who was the first White House liaison to the Office of Violence Against Women, um, first ever and under the Obama administration, a role that um, has been unfilled by the Trump administration uh, two and a half years into his... In fact, there isn't even a head of nobody appointed to the Office of Violence Against Women by him either. So, But anyway, um, yeah, she said, you know, in some ways the women's movement, the beneficiaries of the women's movement have, have been men because men now have the ability to raise their children. They're involved in their, in their kids' lives like never before. And, um, you know, they, they, um, they're sort of like many of them are benefiting economically from having two income families. And so she, she made that point. I thought it was really interesting. I'd never thought about it like that before. So there's not a head, but there's also not nobody really working in that office. Yeah. You know, I'd have to look I think there might be somebody who is uh temporary right now. And certainly the office of violence against women has all of its, you know, career employees still, there but you know like like you know for for under the obama administration it was b hansen um for for, i mean it's just it's like it's like not having an attorney general appointed there's nobody appointed to the office of violence against women somebody somebody kind of running it in the in in the absentia of someone being appointed but it's it just you know sort of gives you an idea of where this administration's priorities are yeah so you yeah so you teach students you uh mm-hmm. teach journalism writing right i uh, teach um yeah i have a joint appointment in journalism and creative writing right so you as a journalist and as a creative writer teach mm-hmm. sympathy and empathy and you teach the difference between those two i'm sure mm-hmm. um when you went into the darkness there when you went to talk to the people who were violent terrorists domestic terrorists how did you find any empathy you know, I, I, it's not hard for me. That's a, that's, I know that's a terrible answer, but it's, it's not hard for me to see the complexity in people. None of us want to be relegated to a single story, um, or a single narrative. And, um, 
many of the abusers I met had, uh, you know, sexual violence as children in their past, were themselves the victims of violence. And it doesn't excuse the behavior. They still need to be accountable as adults. But uh, it complicates the, the sort of single narrative that we might have of these people. You know, I had a researcher say to me while I was working on this book, he's, Neil Webstel is his name, and he said, you know, we always ask why the women, we always ask why the women stay, but we never ask why the men stay. And yet, if they're abusing their spouse, they're, they're unhappy in that relationship too. Why do they stay? And that just caused me to think about them differently, I guess. I thought, you know, if we don't approach them and hear their stories, we don't ever have any hope of moving beyond this moment of like, you know, treating the victim after the violence has happened as opposed to trying to stop the violence at its core, at its core. You talk about, um, you said, and then I'll, then I'll let you go. We've gone longer than I'd promised. Um, you talk about, you write this towards the end, if I had to whittle down the changing world of domestic violence to just one idea, because you have looked at all these positive programs and the people who have mm-hmm. um, made it work for themselves and for others, and we do have these policies that you write about in the book. You write, uh, if I had to whittle down the changing world of domestic violence to just one idea that made all the difference, it would be communication. And I just read that and I said, no, what? Communication? Even for the men? Yeah. Yeah. I'm sorry. My, I hope that's not going off. My phone is like going off like, like crazy. <laughs> that's all right. You're, you're, it's, you're, it's publication day. It's publication day. And I, in fact, my, my, my daughter is sick and home from school. So, of course, these worlds are colliding. Um, so I hope you're not hearing that. It's sort of driving me crazy a little bit. But no, I hear it. I um, hear it. And I probably can't even get all of it out of there. So we'll just pretend. We'll just okay. leave this part in. This is reality. I'm so sorry. I don't know if I could. Oh, I should have put. Yeah, I should have put my phone on Do Not Disturb. Okay, sorry. Um, Anyway. Yeah, communication. communication. Across bureaucracies, even ideologies, people are trying to work together, and it's all about making this whole process that you kind of talked about it, making it mundane, matter of fact, and that's how we can help save lives. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, if, if if we can address domestic violence in the misdemeanor phase before it becomes a felony, we change things. If we can have um, police and domestic violence advocates to, um, you know, two completely different cultures uh, interact and and talk with each other. I mean, I've talked to so many uh, police police officers who are like, oh, I just didn't, I didn't think about the context of domestic violence or the psychology when I go to a victim's house and that victim starts screaming at me I think what's your problem you know I'm here to save you and you're screaming at me and then police learn oh it's because they fear retaliation once we're gone they fear their abuser they're making a show of solidarity they, they have a context for it right that comes from communication with domestic violence advocates when they talk to police and the police say gosh I get so frustrated going back to the same house again and again and again why don't they just leave and the domestic violence advocates are able to explain why or they're able to see how frustrating that can be for police you know it's it's all about sort of like sharing information across these really different cultures you know um i mean look at how hard it is 
for Congress to work together right now, like to use Congress as a metaphor for domestic violence, uh, uh, you know, advocacy agents, law enforcement, all, all across the board, probation, parole, judges, um, you know, uh, advocates, crisis center workers, shelter workers, if they all got together and sort of talked about their own little piece uh, and what they see, you know, the communities that have done that are communities that have really created change. One of the shocking stats to me in the book, or facts, I guess it's not a stat, was learning that one of the ways that success is gauged in terms of how we're addressing domestic violence is in any given community is if the murders, if the homicides of men have decreased. And when I heard the researcher say that, I thought, oh, she means women. She misspoke. She can't be talking about men. She means murders of women. But I asked her later after her presentation, she said, no, no, no. In the communities where homicides of men have been reduced, those are communities that have gotten together, broken down some of these these cultural walls, opened up communication, and provided a huge constellation of resources for survivors, for victims. And I was like blown away by that. Like it seemed initially to defy logic, and then once she explained it, it was like, oh my God, why are we not doing that? The recipe is so simple, actually. Hmm. It's a, we're back you know? to that concept of public health. This is a right. public health issue. Right, right, absolutely. And even in even in some of the batters intervention groups I sat in when I was listening to um, men who were uh, court ordered to be in those programs, one that is in my mind really fascinating in California, the San Bruno Jail, has men deconstruct their moment, like the moment of violence that landed them in jail. And they deconstruct it second by second, sensory input by sensory input. So they look at how their body moved. They look at, you know, how their muscles clenched, how they maybe hunched over. They looked at, you know, what their voice sounded like. And they do this. It takes hours. And they, for the first time ever, get a sense of what they look like from the outside in. It's fascinating. And it doesn't change everyone. We don't have, you know, um, a, a vaccine for violence, right? There isn't one simple solution. But it, it, we have all these different tools. And so many of the tools come down to this one fundamental concept of communication. Yeah, you, uh, you also then would, would help men to express their emotions publicly to feel the emotions publicly not the violent emotions not the violence which seems to be how we end up unleashing the bottled up emotions but uh, it would help men express their emotions in a way that could you know help them see themselves right absolutely i mean one guy one guy said how after he went through this program which is a year long program and you know did this exercise of deconstructing his moment of violence the, the strategy he uses now for when he gets really mad is, you know, and he feels that violent urge sort of coming, coming from inside him, is he just takes a step back and it like re-triggers his brain. Just take just stepping away instead of stepping in to a moment of violence. It's, it's astounding. 
that one little thing. So we have the tools. You, uh, you do end this book by talking about how you don't want to be just in the darkness. So we look at these heroes and that you, you look at a woman who does this work and it becomes mundane in a way that shows it to be uh, able to be contained at the small levels, at the misdemeanor levels and behind and beyond. Right. Are you, um, the, and because we talked about this at the beginning, are you glad you wrote this book? I'm really glad I wrote it. Actually, no one's ever asked me that before. I feel like um, this is the biggest gift I'll ever give my daughter is trying to do something that could make her world a little bit better. It's such a narcissistic view, isn't it? Like, it's all about me and my kid. But I do, I do, I do feel like, you know, no one had written a book like this before. We, we've written about poverty and we've, there's, a, there's a wonderful, amazing books about you know, evicted by, by Matthew Desmond and Nickel and Dimes by Barbara Ehrenreich and Random Family by Adrian Nicola Blank and There Are No Children Here by Alex Kotlowitz. I could go on and on. This kind of immersion um, narrative journalism about issues of of gang violence and poverty and homelessness, but nobody had done this with domestic violence before. And so I, I am glad. Someone had to write it. Someone had to write it. And so many writers say, write the book that you want to read. So I did. I appreciate you talking to me and I'm, yeah, I, was, I appreciate we had a few awesome. laughs in all this, in this topic too. Yeah, totally. Yeah. You got it. You got to have a few laughs in there for your own, you know, salvation. Yeah. By the way, Seattle is my favorite city in the country. Like if I could live there, I would move there tomorrow. They'd let just you, love they'll, it. They'll let you move. You can oh, they'll let me move. Someone's <laughs> got to get, I have tenure, you know, golden handcuffs. But um, yeah, um, <laughs> I mean, I love it in D.C. too, I have to say. But I just, Seattle, I go there. First of all, like the five times I've been there, four times of the five, it was sunny every single day. So I probably have an inaccurate sense of Seattle. No, but, no, oh that's the dark secret. You come in the right time of year and it is, it is the most beautiful place ever. Oh, it is truly, it is, that city is like a gift to all of us. I just really, I just really love it. I feel like I go there and those are my people. Yeah, I think that, <laughs> I, I agree with you. I feel that way. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, that's good. That's good. Yeah. All right. Awesome. Okay. Thank you very much. Thank you much. so much. This was a pleasure. Thank mine, you, Steve. Mine as well. And and I hope your daughter gets better. Give her some yeah. chicken soup. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks. Bye. Bye-bye. Rachel Louise Snyder is author of No Visible Bruises. What We Don't Know About Domestic Violence Can Kill Us. She appeared in Seattle at the Forum at Town Hall, May 21st, 2019 at 7.30. Her website is globalgrit.com. You can hear an excerpt from this interview with Snyder, along with interviews with other Town Hall guests conducted by local correspondents at the Town Hall podcast In the Moment, hosted by Ginny Palmer. Find it wherever you find your podcasts, as you found this one. And if you like it, I'd really appreciate you leaving a review at Apple or Stitcher or wherever you find your podcasts. More reviews means more people might get a chance to listen to these interviews and enjoy them, as I hoped you have. Neil Stevenson, our guest next time on the program. Thank you again for listening to At Length.